This morning we come to a a rather difficult uh, chapter in the book of Genesis. We come this morning to Genesis chapter 38. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you uh, to turn with me there. This chapter, as we will see, is a continuation of the crimes of the sons of Jacob. We've already seen, as we've been working through Genesis, the immorality of Reuben. We've seen the violence of Simeon and Levi. We've seen the hatred, the jealousy, the murderous intent, and the man-stealing and lying of the brothers collectively. And here in Genesis chapter 38, we come to Judah in particular. Judah showed up in chapter 37 as the one who had the idea of selling their brother into slavery, and now we see him falling even further into the paths of sin and wickedness. So, Let's come and look to Genesis chapter 38. Begin reading in verse 1. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went in to his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brother's. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Temna. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, Will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. 
He asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enam? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time that she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. And so, here, in the the midst, as it were, of the narrative concerning Joseph, we have this insertion of a chapter on Judah. Among the sons of Jacob, we don't have much information about the family of 10 of the 12 brothers. Now, we know the sons that were born to the 10 sons of Jacob. We know that from the various genealogies given concerning them. But but of 10 of the brothers, we don't know really anything of their wives, the circumstances of their marriage, and the birth of those children, and so on. The exceptions to the rule for the sons of Jacob are Joseph and Judah. Joseph, obviously, is the hero of these latter chapters of Genesis and the deliverer of his nation, and so it's no surprise that we learn of his wife and his sons. But here in chapter 38, the narrative uh, about Joseph is interrupted by this chapter about Judah and his sons. And just, just at a glance, it might appear to be out of place, might appear bizarrely irrelevant. But the material here is important inasmuch as Judah prevails over his brothers, he becomes a leader among them, and inasmuch as from him will come the royal line of the house of David, and ultimately from him will come the Christ according to the flesh. And nor is this chapter out of place. Uh, the, the wickedness of Judah has already been demonstrated, as we saw last week back in chapter 37, where he's the one who suggested selling Joseph into slavery. The wickedness of Judah is further elucidated here in chapter 38, and it is elucidated in such a way as to show a marked contrast with the conduct of Joseph that we find in Genesis chapter 39. Here in chapter 38, Judah is willing to offer payment for the gratification of his lust to his daughter-in-law, whom he mistakes for a prostitute. Chapter 39, you see quite the opposite, where Joseph refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife and does so to his own hurt. 
It's quite a contrast between these two brothers. And so let's, let's consider this chapter, as difficult as it is. This is a chapter that shows us human depravity, human hypocrisy, and therefore warns us against it. But at the same time, when we consider this chapter in light of the full counsel of God, we will also observe something of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the greatness of his humility, and therefore the greatness of his glory, and the greatness of his grace toward sinners. And so we'll spend most of our time on, on the first point, considering the depravity that is here, because there's, there's a lot of depravity here. But we will come around at the end to see the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so verse 1 gives us a, a bit of a time marker from which we can time these events. These events begin to happen about the time that Joseph was sold into slavery. And so along about that time, Judah goes away from his father's household and away from his brothers. He turns aside uh, to this man called Hira. This man becomes his friend, and the friendship apparently lasts for, for quite some time as he shows up later on in the chapter after Judah's sons are grown up. The sons who, at the beginning of this chapter, were not yet born. And so this seems to be a a long and enduring friendship that that Judah and this man, Hira the Adulamite, have. And as he was there with Hira the Adulamite, we see that Judah marries a Canaanite woman, the daughter of a man named Shua. Now, if we keep in mind the, the history of Genesis that we have already seen to this point, even just these first two verses of chapter 38 should tip us off that there are some problems here, right? Because Abraham, back in chapter 24, had forbidden his servant to take a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites, right? That's why the servant had to go all the way back to uh, the land where Abraham's family was to find a wife for Isaac, because Canaanite wives, bad. We don't want that. And Genesis 26, the Canaanite wives of Esau were a great cause of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob had been charged explicitly by Isaac not to take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, Genesis 28, 6, and had been sent away to take a wife from the daughters of Laban. And so for the patriarchs, marrying a Canaanite was trouble. And though there's no particular text to this effect, my guess is that if you had asked Jacob, should your sons marry Canaanites, yes or no, Jacob probably would have said no. His grandfather and his father had said no. He himself had said no. My guess is Jacob would have also said no. No, they should not marry Canaanites. But Judah here seems to be striking off on his own, rubbing shoulders with the Canaanites as such. Is it surprising at all that he wanted to marry one of their daughters? Well, probably no surprise at all. And there's a bit of warning here, I think, in regard to the company that we keep. Right? Proverbs 13.20 warns us that he who walks with wise men will be wise. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Companion of fools will suffer harm. Surely much more could be said here, but suffice it to say that the company you keep and the friendships that you cultivate as a general rule are going to influence your life. Could be for bad, could be for good. And they'll probably influence your life more than you think they will. You think you're going to be the influence on them. You're going you're to bring them up. Well, probably not. They're probably going to bring you down. And so choose your friends and your companions wisely. So Judah marries the daughter of Shua. They have three sons. As his oldest son Ur comes of age, Judah selects this woman Tamar to be his wife. 
But the judgment of God came down upon Ur, as we see in verse 7, that he was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord took his life. Now, we're not given any reasons as to why this happened. We don't know what he did that was evil in the sight of the Lord, for which the Lord took this man's life. But we need to acknowledge that the Lord in this has every right to do as he sees fit. He gives and takes away. He gives life. He takes away life. Nebuchadnezzar would later realize and recognize, as you find in Daniel 4.35, that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Can't say that to God. God is in charge, and God is just, and certainly just in this case. And so, after the death of Ur, even though the Mosaic precept regarding leveret marriage had not yet been given, Judah viewed it only as right that his next son, Onan, ought to be united to Tamar so that offspring might be raised up for Ur. And therefore he says to Onan, verse 8, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this custom seems bizarre to us, right? This is not, this is not the way that marriages roll here, but this was the way things went in the ancient world, not only among the Israelites, but also in many other cultures. And we find the, the codification of this law uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And... Uh, Let me just read verses 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy 25. It explains the situation this way. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. The husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And if you read on in Deuteronomy 25 after that, the next few verses explain the procedure that should be followed if the dead husband's brother will not perform the duty that is required of him. And, and certainly if we think more broadly in the scriptures, this uh, issue of leveret marriage is central to the developments in the book of Ruth, right? Boaz was a kinsman of Ruth's dead husband. The, the He was not the nearest kinsman, but he was second in line. And after that nearest kinsman redeemer declined to to marry Ruth, Boaz stepped up to the plate and he married Ruth. And likewise, uh, the issue of leveret marriage, you'll recall, formed the background of the question that the Sadducees used as they attempted to trap Jesus, as recorded in Matthew 22, verses 23 and following. They had this, uh, this situation that they had thought up Hey, there were seven brothers, right? The first one married a wife, had no children, and so the second one married her, had no children, died, and on on and on down the list until all the seven brothers died, and last of all, the woman died. And then they said, ah, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and they thought, okay, Jesus believes in the resurrection, we're going to trap him right here. This is the perfect test case to ask Jesus about. They said, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. And Jesus, of course, goes on to point out their folly. Matthew twenty-two, twenty-nine: you are mistaken. 
not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And he explains to them their folly. Now, it's beyond our scope today to to delve into Matthew 22, but nevertheless, Jesus points out their folly. And their folly had nothing to do with the issue of levirate marriage. Their folly was that they didn't believe the power of God. They didn't understand the way that the resurrection would actually be. And so the point that I'm going for here, though, is that we, we see that this concept of, of leveret marriage is part of, part of the Old Testament law, part of Old Testament practice, and uh, was embedded in the, the Jewish way of thinking, such that the Sadducees could use this as an example to try to trap Jesus. And as we see here in Genesis 38, this practice of uh, leveret marriage actually predated the Mosaic law. Indeed, this is an ancient practice, again, not only in Jewish culture, but in many cultures. It was not only practiced by the Jews. The ancient law code known as the Middle Assyrian Laws, which was codified somewhere between 1500 to 1100 BC, had among its laws legislation for this very thing, leveret marriage. And that that period would have been somewhat after these events of Genesis 38, but, but nevertheless, this is an ancient example of leveret marriage outside of the Jewish nation. This was the way that things went down in some of these ancient patriarchal societies. And as we see here in Genesis 38, and we see in the law in Deuteronomy 25, the purpose was to provide an heir for the dead husband. Onan here recognized this. As verse 9 makes clear, he knew that the offspring would not be his. It would not be accounted as his own child. The child would be counted as his brothers, and so when he went into Tamar to perform the duty of a brother-in-law to his dead wife's brother, the text says that he spilled his seed on the ground. Now, I think it's, it's clear enough what's going on here, but this was wrong. Look to verse 10. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. This action of Onan displeased the Lord to such an extent that the Lord took his life. Now again, we don't know why the Lord took Ur's life, but we do know why the Lord took Onan's life. It was because of this particular act of contraception on his part. Now I don't say that we can necessarily reason our way from verses 9 and 10 and make the case that all efforts at contraception are sinful. Certainly some have done that. I, I do not do that. But While we're here, I think it's worthwhile to keep in mind that we're dealing with a very specific case of contraception. This was not a straight-up regular marriage, right? This is a leveret marriage. The very reason why Onan and Tamar were united was for the purpose of raising up offspring for the dead brother. And also we need to keep in mind that even though Onan went into Tamar, the very reason that he wasted his seed on the ground was because he knew that the offspring would not be his. And he did not want to give offspring to his brother. That is explicitly stated in the text. And the ESV may well be on the right track when it translated verse 9 as saying that Onan did this whenever he went into his brother's wife. In other words, this may well not have been just a one-time occurrence. This may have been a repeated pattern. And so Onan is doing some family planning here, and his plan was for zero children from this leveret marriage. And the fact of the matter was that his halfway cooperation in the leveret marriage actually amounted to no real cooperation at all. And so the Lord put him to death 
or his contraceptive intervention. Now, given, given all of that, the circumstances are somewhat different from what we might call a, a normal marriage and a normal couple's family planning. Marriage itself is given to us by God not only for procreation, to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply, but also for the prevention of sexual sin. We find this in 1 Corinthians 7, 2 and following. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And marriage is also given for for fellowship, for companionship, as we find in in Genesis 2.18 in the creation account. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I think the Book of Common Prayer nicely brought these these three ideas together in laying out the the purposes for marriage, that, that marriage was ordained for the procreation of children, to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord, to the praise of his holy name. Secondly, it was ordained as a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of continency might marry and might keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, it was ordained for mutual society, help, and comfort, that the one ought to have the other both in prosperity and in adversity. And so, all things considered, I think when we consider the, the sinfulness of Onan's contraception here, we need to understand that there are some elements going on here that are not necessarily present in all efforts at contraception. And so I don't want to use this text of Genesis 38 as a prescriptive text that legislates against any and all forms of contraception. But while we're here, I would speak to the issue of contraception just briefly. And we want to start back again with creation and the creation mandate. The human race has been given a command, Genesis 1.28, Genesis 9.1, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, obviously, there are certainly exceptions to that command. The command can only rightly be obeyed in the context of marriage. Some individuals remain unmarried, whether through personal choice or through providential circumstances. For those who have the gift of celibacy and contentment, the choice to remain single is a fully legitimate choice. Among couples who are married, some desire to have children, but are providentially hindered from having children. And this is no fault of their own and can be a very heavy burden for couples to bear. And so we understand that there are exceptions to the command to be fruitful and multiply, but at the same time, given technological advances in birth control and so on, I think it does need to be said that for a married couple to remain intentionally childless is often, at the very least, an indication that priorities may not be where they ought to be. I understand there uh, certainly may be exceptions with regard to uh, the health of the would-be parents, the potential health of the child, genetics, and those kinds of things. But what I do want to 
push back against is the idea of a couple getting married and having absolutely zero intentions of having a child at all. And especially if the reasons for those zero intentions of having a child at all is the purpose of pursuing ambition or pleasure. Namely, an attitude that says, I don't want to have kids because they would interfere with my career. I want this awesome job where I'll be working 70 hours a week. I want to be uh, pursuing a PhD so I can make bukus of money and all of that. I don't have time for kids. I want to push back also against the mentality that says, I don't want to have kids because I really like my free time. I want to be having these awesome vacations every year, and I can't take an awesome vacation while I'm pushing a stroller and carrying a diaper bag. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to pursue me. Uh, that's, that's what I want to push back against. Again, I grant that there are certainly exceptions, but nevertheless, the creation mandate expresses what is good and right and natural in the sight of God. Solomon says in Psalm 127, verse 3, that children are a gift from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Paul counsels younger widows to get married and bear children, 1 Timothy 5, 14. Malachi 2, 15 speaks of the importance of faithfulness in marriage because the Lord desires that godly offspring would be brought up from those marriages. And so the creation mandate is to be fruitful and multiply, and there's something good and right about this. And even to those couples who who have children or intend to have children and also make use of birth control, I would urge you to be cautious and informed about the methods that you use. One thing that we must guard against in this respect is any form of birth control that actually functions as an abortifacient. That is to say that we as Christians must not use birth control methods that actually facilitate the death of a fertilized egg, which is to say it leads to the death of a conceived human being. You probably know that the pill prevents a woman from ovulating, but did you know that many, perhaps all, I don't know, many at least, forms of the pill have a backup mechanism in them in case the woman ovulates while they are on the pill. Did you realize that? And did you know that that backup mechanism functions in such a way that it prevents a fertilized egg from implanting on the lining of the womb? And that then leads to the death of the fertilized egg. That is to say, the death of a one-celled human being. And that is also the way that the IUDs work, as I understand it. Now, I will allow your biblically informed conscience the freedom to weigh and consider birth control methods that do not kill or destroy human life. But you have no freedom as a Christian to destroy innocent life, even when that life is in the body of the mother as a newly fertilized egg. You have no freedom to take that life. So... To get back to to Genesis 38, though, let's take stock and see see where we are so far. We've seen Judah buddying up to the Canaanites, marrying a Canaanite woman, having three sons by her, two of whom, uh, whose lives are taken by the Lord. Precise reasons uh, for Ur's death is a mystery. The reason for Onan's death is clearly revealed. Now, when we pick up in verse 11, we notice how Judah responds now after the death of Onan. 
In the Levert marriage custom, Shelah, the third son of Judah, should be united with Tamar. Under the circumstances, though, as it stands, she needs to wait because Shelah evidently is not yet grown up. And so Judah tells her to go back to her father's house to wait until Shelah grows up. But at the same time, we begin to see some superstitious fear on the part of Judah. Right? He's, he's getting pretty nervous about giving his third son and to date his last son to this woman, Tamar. Right? He's already married off two of his sons to this woman, and they both ended up dead. What's, what's going on here? What is it with this woman? Right? And he seems to also be afraid now that Sheila will die if he were to be united with Tamar. Despite the fact that he had told her to wait for Sheila to grow up, we see his fear in verse 11, and we see from down in verse 14 that even after Sheila was grown up, Tamar was not given to him as a wife. And from all of this, we, we can see, I think, that Judah was more concerned with consequences than with duty. That Judah was more concerned with consequences than with his duty. He was more concerned about what would happen to Sheila. What's going to happen to my son if I give her to this woman, if I unite them in marriage? He's more concerned about that than stepping back and asking the question, should I give my son to her in marriage? And this kind of reasoning, the kind that concerns itself more with the question of what will happen rather than the question, is this right or wrong, is a problem. The problem is that we can use the same kind of reasoning that Judah appears to use here to justify ourselves in all kinds of sins. For example, someone might think, well, if I discipline my child, they'll grow up to hate me. They'll have some kind of a complex or whatever. Sometimes discipline has crossed the line and turned into abuse, and I certainly don't want to do that, so just not going to discipline my child. And if we reason in that way, we are actually reasoning against what God has commanded us in the scriptures, right? And so we find in Proverbs 13, 24, that he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. We find in Proverbs 19, 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Or just to think of another example, you could get placed between a rock and a hard place at work, where you are commanded by your superiors to do something sinful as part of your job responsibilities. Um, I know of a man who uh, worked for a, a city years ago, and he was kind of in charge, a, an a administrative official kind of over the, the ambulance system for this city, and they told him to, to falsify some records, basically, so that they could get some more money. I don't know, more state money, more federal money, and he said, I'm a Christian, I, I can't do that. And they said, we'll do it or get fired. And he took, he took his job termination. He chose his honor and his obedience to Christ above the, the job. But you could easily imagine how someone in his situation could have said, well, if I don't comply with what I'm being told to do, I'll lose my job. I'll lose my home. I won't be able to feed my family. And you can go on down the list. This is thinking first of consequence rather than of duty, And this is the same kind of thinking that, that Judah employs here. The first question that we need to ask is the question, is this right or is this wrong in the sight of God? We're called to be the people who obey God regardless of the cost. 
And as we've already seen in the book of Genesis, we have a remarkable example of that in Abraham in Genesis 22, as Abraham demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice his son, the son of the promise, if God should so command it. Surely if Abraham had been of a disposition to do so, he could have come up with plenty of reasons why he should shy away and pull back from what God had commanded him. Well, this is the son that God promised me. Surely, surely God's not telling me to do this. But Abraham didn't do that, did he? He obeyed the Lord, even when the command seemed to run counter to the very promises that the Lord had given him. And so we ought to take a lesson from Judah that our first question must not be about the consequences of our actions, but rather the first question must be, what does faithfulness and obedience to God require of me in this situation? Now, from verse 12 and following, we find that eventually Judah's wife died, and after mourning for his wife, he goes up to shear his sheep. He's still running around with his friend, Hira the Adulamite, and as Judah is going to Temna to shear his sheep, Judah's movements were reported, meanwhile, to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar had been in limbo now for quite some time. According to verse 12, it was a considerable time, or many days between the time at which Judah had told her to go back to her father's house and the time at which Judah's wife had died. And so she's in limbo. Under the circumstances, she is not free to marry anyone else, not free to, to move on with her life. She is kept at her father's house as a widow, waiting for Sheila to be given, uh, for her to be given to Sheila so that they might be united in marriage. And now Sheila has grown up. He is still being withheld from her. And so under the circumstances, she enacted a wicked scheme. To borrow the words of Matthew Henry, Tamar wickedly prostituted herself as a harlot to Judah, that if the son might not, the father might raise up, cease, raise up seed to the deceased. And that's what happened. She took off her widow's garment, portrayed herself as a prostitute along the way by which Judah was going. She tried to entrap her father-in-law so that she might conceive by him. And the plan worked. Judah turned aside, supposing her to be a prostitute. He didn't have the goods to pay her on hand, but they negotiated a transaction in which he left his cords and seal or his cords and and signet along with his staff to serve as a deposit until he could come and get the young goat he had promised to give her. The seal was a metallic object that would have been used for leaving an impression like on on wax on official documents to verify the identity of the one who had the seal and had made his mark with it and this seal might have been carried on on cords around his neck and so that might be that might be what the the reference there is to the cord now i realize this is not a not a one to one comparison but if we were to put this in our terms it might be something like your driver's license um I went to the hospital uh, a while back and made a visit, and uh, for the area to the hospital that I was visiting, they asked me to, to hand over my driver's license at the, at the front desk. And they, they knew that it would be valuable enough to me that I would be coming back to them in order to get my driver's license, and they also had a way of identifying me. If I misbehaved while I was in there, they knew exactly who I was. And so there's a sense in which I think what Judah does here is somewhat analogous to to handing over your driver's license. His seal was an identifier. Uh, You could tell who he was based on his seal. And this was probably valuable enough that he would send the payment that he had promised in order to get back his seal. 
And so Judah goes in to Tamar. To his mind, he is just visiting a prostitute when in fact he is committing incest. And Tamar, for her part, had contrived and succeeded in committing incest with her father-in-law. Judah was wicked in giving in to his lustful heart. Tamar was wrong to seduce him, to lie in wait, as it were, and to catch him. There was wickedness all around here. And with respect to intentions, I think we can say that Tamar's intentions were worse than those of Judah. After Judah and Tamar part ways, he sends his friend Hira back with the goat to find her and to give the goat in exchange for the seal and the staff. But of course, she is long gone and no one knows anything about her. And we find in verse 23 that when Judah finds out about these developments, he says, let her keep them. Otherwise, we shall become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but did not find her. In other words, he's, he's ready to, to give up the search looking for this prostitute. In one way or another, Judah is oddly concerned now with his reputation. Either that he would be a, a laughingstock for, for being a whoremonger, for pursuing a prostitute, or else that he would be laughed at for essentially handing over his driver's license to a prostitute as security. He had tried to send the goat, and it's not his fault that she wasn't there, he reasons. And so he's ready to cut his losses, try to save face, and be done with this whole situation. But of course, the situation is not done yet. When word reaches Judah that Tamar had played the harlot and was now pregnant, Judah becomes incensed. He is angry. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. What a double standard, right? Immorality seemed fine for him, as far as he was concerned, three months earlier. But now, when it was his daughter-in-law, who was supposed to be married to his third son, who was acting immorally, he thinks quite differently about the subject of immorality. It's easy to be really critical of those who commit the same sins that we do. But for Judah's part, this is clear and rank hypocrisy. And Judah's hypocrisy was exposed when Tamar produced the seal, the signet ring, the cords, the staff, proving that Judah himself was the father of those children in Tamar's womb. And so he responds in verse 26 by saying, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. Tamar had, for a time anyways, done right by the bargain, right? She had went back to her father's house. She had waited for Sheila to be given to her, waited at least for a while, waited until he grew, had grown up. But Judah had not made good on his word to her. I think the words of Matthew Poole were helpful on this point when he said, she was more unchaste because she knowingly committed adultery and incest when he designed neither. But he was more unjust because he was the cause of her sin, both by withholding Sheila from her, who was hers, both by right and by Judah's promise, and by his solicitation and encouragement of her to sin. And so there's a sense in which Tamar's conduct was more unchaste, but Judah was unjust because he had was more unjust because he had set into motion the circumstances which led to this and he had actively pursued her and perpetrated this sin with her. And so Tamar was certainly not justified in doing what she did. There was no excuse for it. But the background of it, as we've seen, was Judah's superstitious fear and his failure to give Sheila to her. 
doesn't excuse her sin, but it does explain it. And the incest simply would not have happened had Judah not solicited and made a transaction with a woman that he thought was a random prostitute. There would be no conception, no pregnancy here had Judah not pursued this. And so this passage serves as a warning against all kinds of sins, doesn't it? Warns us about making friends with the world. Warns us about treating consequences as more important than obedience to God. Warns us about failing to live up to our obligations, right? Judah was obliged. He had committed himself to give Shelah to Tamar, but he didn't do it. In particular, we are warned against sexual sin. Onan committed sexual sin. So did Tamar. So did Judah. This whole situation is obviously a mess. And so we need to allow this chapter to serve as an object lesson of the wickedness and consequences of sin, in particular, sexual sin. Unrestrained sexual desire led Judah to do what he did. And then he was worried about his reputation. But what he did was not only made known publicly when Tamar showed his seal and said, whose are these? This has also been recorded in Scripture for over 3,000 years so that everyone who reads the book of Genesis can see what a fool and what a sinner Judah was. Now God created the human race as male and female, as sexual beings, and that is fine and good, but our problem comes when we refuse to allow God to set the rules for sexual expression. When we refuse to follow God's rules for sexual expression, which is to say one woman and one man in the context of holy matrimony, if we refuse to accept that, then there are all kinds of evils that flow from it, all kinds of subsequent problems that come from it. And Solomon warns us quite plainly about this in Proverbs. So Proverbs 6, beginning of verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes in to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And again, Proverbs seven twenty one and following. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as an ox goes to the slaughter, as, or as one in the fetters of the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. doesn't know until it's too late that it will cost him his life. Now, this is, this is serious stuff. The culture, of course, says this is no big deal as long as it's two consenting adults who are involved and that if you're not getting what you want, you are being repressed. Satan will tell you that it is no big deal. The flesh will tell you that you deserve this or that you must have it. But this is not true because this is the way of death and judgment. If we pursue sexual expression aside from what the Lord has made clear to us. And so we read together those words from 1 Corinthians 6. Flee immorality. For every other sin a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God 
in your body. And so there's lots to be warned about here. But there is also, as we said, if we take Genesis 38 and and fan out and look at the entirety of Scripture, we also see the glory and greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see Christ's humility. We know from Philippians 2, 6 and 7, that our Lord, though he existed in the form of God, yet did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Now, the closing verses of chapter 38 tell about the birth of the two sons, those twins of Tamar. There was Perez and Zerah. And John read for us the, uh, the genealogy from Matthew chapter 1, in which we see that the, the lineage from, from Judah to David included Judah and Tamar and their son Perez. And so the, the line leading to David, therefore the line leading to Christ, includes this lineage right here, produced in the way that we read about here in Genesis 38. And so not only did our Lord become a man, but he humbled himself to become a man from this lineage right here, a lineage with some very dark things in its past and a past that everyone who can read the book of Genesis can read about and see. Now, I don't, I don't know how much you know about your own family's past and if you've got skeletons in the closet in your family history, but if you have, it can be a bit embarrassing. It can be a bit shameful. There's some things in my family's past that you don't find me talking about. You don't. Even, even my closest friends don't hear me talking about some of the things in my family's past. But our Lord... Jesus Christ became a man from a family line which sprang from incest and mock prostitution, from Judah's lust and Tamar's wicked contrivance. That is humility. And we see the Lord's grace to sinners like Judah and Tamar that though they did evil here in this chapter, yet it is through them, it's through this, that all the families of the earth are blessed. Right? That was the promise given to, given to Abraham, given to Isaac and Jacob, that in them all families of the earth would be blessed. We know that comes ultimately in Christ. And from Jacob the line flows to Judah. From Judah the line flows to Perez. And it flows right here through Genesis 38. I don't think, considering all of that, that it is too much to borrow and adapt those words from later on in the book of Genesis, Genesis 50:20, and say that though they meant it for evil... Both of them, Judah and Tamar, though they meant it for evil, yet God meant it for good to bring about the present result, the salvation of souls from every nation through the incarnation of the Son of God so that the Son of God might come into the world and become a man and go to the cross and die for sinners, even sinners like Judah and Tamar. And as we'll see later on in the book of Genesis, Judah seems to become a changed man. He becomes the leader of his brothers. He becomes a man... Uh, who is changed from the kind who would sell his brother into slavery and seek out a prostitute to a man who is willing to be imprisoned so that his younger brother Benjamin can go free. Though we see Judah and Tamar at their lowest point here, we must remember 
that with God there is the forgiveness of sins, that he may be feared. And so this chapter shows us the, the depths of human depravity and therefore warns us. But again, when viewed in light of all of Scripture, it shows us how God is so great that he can bring good, even bring the greatest good, the coming of Christ into the world, out of such great wickedness as this. In other words, we could say it this way, that the sin of Judah and Tamar did not have the last word in this story. The grace of God triumphed over their evil and overruled it all for good. And so let us praise God for his power, for his grace towards sinners, and praise Christ for his humility and his condescension. And let us also come to him in repentance and faith, trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins, so that his grace and not our sin would have the last word in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we know ourselves as sinners. Father, we know that we are weak and that there is nothing that we have read about in this chapter that any one of us are beyond. Though we might think that we are, we are not. And so, Father, we pray that we would be humble enough to learn the lessons of this chapter. And we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to see, despite the darkness and the wickedness here, your grace coming even through these sinful events to bring your Son into the world so that we might have life in his name. Lord, we, we ask your blessing. We ask your help. Pray that you keep us from sin. Pray that we might all run to Christ in faith. And we ask this in his name. Amen.